1: This is a podcast from BBC Studios, Studios. a commercial subsidiary of the BBC. BBC.
2: The gob-faced squid is tiny, it's about the size of a jam jar, maybe, thereabouts, Um, and it does look like it's got these terrifying human teeth. Like It looks like it's been to the dentist and and come out with a proper set of gnashers. The strange thing is that those teeth are not teeth, they're actually its lips.
3: Welcome to the BBC Earth podcast. The podcast that brings you stories from the wide and wonderful natural world. Even the bits of it you might prefer not to hear about. I'm Emily Knight.
2: Yeah, stuff of nightmares. Like When you see these things that live deep down in the bottom of the ocean, they just look like they live deep down in the bottom of your psyche as well.
3: Today we're taking a look at beauty in the natural world. Things that are beautiful and things that very much aren't.
2: Ugly like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. We can talk about the majesty of a whale, but we could also talk about the stupidness of an naked mole rat.
3: We start the show today with a question. Honestly, who even cares about ugly animals?
2: My name is Simon Watts and I am President for Life of the Ugly Animal Preservation Society.
3: This guy does. So the Ugly Animal
2: Preservation Society is not a real society. It's a satirical society, though you can still join us. I created it to try and give voice to those kind of more aesthetically challenged creatures that are out there. Because everybody knows the panda, and I thought we need to get talking about things like the blobfish, like the dromedary jumping slug, like the dugong. Creatures which are not blessed with the good looks and the good PR of those cute critters that are out there already. We run it like an election. Democracy but more fun. We get people to elect their own local mascot, their kind of local minger to represent their town. So for instance, London, it's the proboscis monkey, which looks a bit like Squidward or maybe the sort of Gerard Depage of the primate world. It's got this enormous schnaws. and they use it for this great big honking call. And the bigger the schnaws, the more attractive they are. It's a sign of saying that they are the alpha, you know, come get me ladies really for this huge honk. And it comes from Borneo, it needs our help just as much as the orangutan, but it's not quite as famous just because it's not quite as pretty and cute. On the other extreme, you get the Tonkin snub-nosed monkey. There are fewer than 250 of these on the planet. They've got a nose like Voldemort. It seems to be missing. They look like a clown with a coke habit because they've got these huge exaggerated features and then just a missing outside nose, really. So, we do know that there's a favouritism not just in the general public and in terms of what charities get money, but there's also a favouritism within biology in general. If you're a mammal, you're much more likely to be researched. We're much more likely to understand the plight that you might be in in our sixth mass extinction that's facing the planet. Whereas the smaller things and the not-so-cute things don't get quite that much attention. My favourite group of animals if I had to choose is always the frogs. Because amphibians, they're being hit among the hardest of all the vertebrates. Two-thirds of all frogs are in decline. Half of all the amphibians are in decline. And because they're slimy, we don't tend to notice. One of my favourites is the myers suriname toad. It's actually pretty rubbish because it's got no teeth, it's got no tongue. It looks kind of dilapidated. But when it comes to mating, they begin these Olympic-grade sexual gymnastics, and they do backflips. And mid-backflip, he squeezes her eggs all across his belly. He will then spread these across her back like some kind of thick frog jam, and then he fertilizes the eggs. And this is where it gets really disgusting, because her skin starts to grow around the eggs. The eggs hatch out into tadpoles, they turn into frogs, which emerge... Fully formed from her back like that scene from Alien. We also have to remember, we're the minority. Like, the vast majority of life out there, like anybody who's tried internet dating knows, is hideous. Yeah? Most animals are not vertebrates. They do not have spines. Most animals do not have faces the way we have. Most animals are not hairy. Most animals are insects. We have to realise that we're the weird ones. And if we care about conservation and conserving the world at all we have to look to the big, ugly majority. One of the joys of this project is I get to see kind of the infinitude of weirdness that is out there. Drometry Jumping Slug, it's got the remains of a shell a bit like a snail on its back, so it's a bit Hunchback of Notre Dame-esque. The Scrotum Frog. It just looks like an awful lot of leftover elbow. The Blobfish, I think it looks a bit like a, a deep sea blamange, it looks melted, it looks depressed. The, the Canadian, Canadian Blue-Grey Tail, tail droppers, dropper Slug, which for a start is Smurf Blue. If you scare it, it's bum drops off conservation is depressing. So I wanted people to come along and sit there and listen to the conservation message for up to two hours and not feel like the world is going to end. But I also thought that we should not consider sincerity as the only weapon for conservation. We make jokes about politics because politics matters. So I think we should make jokes about conservation because conservation matters. My favourite ugly animal, it changes week to week. Currently it's the Dracula ant. And the Dracula ant is an incredible species from Madagascar. So this is a teeny tiny ant with a sting in its heel, much like a wasp. And it uses the sting to go along, find something like a nice juicy caterpillar, it stings them, carries them back to the colony where the grubs will then eat it alive. So that's gross in its own right. But then we have to ask the question of what do the workers eat? Well, they scratch holes in the babies and suck the babies' blood. And it gets grosser still because what does the queen eat? Well, the workers march up to her and vomit the blood up for her to drink. Disgusting, but of course the point is... It works. Evolution does not care what we think about it. We have to appreciate the the raw beauty of this as well because it's just finding solutions
3: to problems. Of course, as Simon pointed out, the ugliest animals in the world are only ugly to us. The greasiest, flabbiest blobfish in the ocean is hot stuff to all the other blobfish out there. We'll never know if animals experience beauty the way we do. That's more a question for philosophy. But we do know that animals find each other attractive. And not indiscriminately attractive either. They're choosy. Some blobfish are hotter than others, apparently.
0: But how does an animal decide
3: what's hot and what's not?
0: I think that the two kinds of beauty that matter the most and occasionally overlap are sexual attractiveness to mates and cuteness of helpless young that need nurturing. That's
3: Deirdre Barrett, clinical psychologist at Harvard Medical School
0: most drives are really being controlled by a few very simple stimuli. There are a few things about colour or shape or call or something that are really the pull.
3: Turns out that animals
0: tend to hone in on just
3: one or two really important traits when they're sizing up a potential mate. Perhaps it's the eye spots on the wings, perhaps it's the shape of the antlers, or maybe it's the crest of brightly coloured feathers on the head. As long as you've got a good example of that key trait, you're gorgeous. Even if it's faked.
0: There's research with chickadees.
3: A chickadee is a tiny North American bird in the tit family, with a white face and a smart black cap of feathers on its head.
0: Researchers put little black, like, dunce caps on the chickadees that made their topknot considerably taller than the natural little black crest that chickadees have. And females mated preferentially with these silly-looking males with the black dunce cap sticking up high on their head.
3: Once an animal has evolved an attraction to a specific trait, it's pretty unshakable. And even more interestingly, this attraction extends way past the boundaries of what's realistic. If you like a black feather crest on the head, you'll go crazy for a ridiculous little top hat, no matter how unlike a chickadee it makes your partner look. This phenomenon, to find crazy exaggerations of specific traits beautiful, is called the supernormal stimulus. Deirdre wrote a book about it.
0: So the term supernormal stimulus was coined by Nicholas Tinbergen in describing some effects in his animal research. So he did a lot of research with butterflies. If he painted cylinders with stripes like the female of a certain species had, the males would try to mate selectively with the cylinder, with the more dramatic markings, and that it didn't even have to have wings to be chosen over a real female butterfly. Tim Bergen also did research with birds' eggs as to what drew the bird to sit on a particular egg what he found was that birds would select an egg that was an exaggeration of their natural. If they laid a pale brown egg, then they liked deeper brown eggs. If they laid pale blue eggs, they liked dayglow blue eggs. So he could get little songbirds that laid pale blue dappled eggs to sit on a dayglow blue dummy that was like 10 times the size of its egg that it would slide off and have to hop back on. And it would selectively try to incubate that fake plaster bright blue egg over its own actual eggs. The gray leg goose, which lays a naturally brown egg, if it has to choose between its own egg and a volleyball, it will choose the volleyball. Most animals only encounter supernormal stimuli when researchers are messing with them. But there are a few supernormal stimuli in nature, and the cuckoo is certainly the best example of that. Cuckoos exaggerate the traits of a particular bird's eggs. It lays an egg that essentially looks to the other bird like a super healthy, most wonderful version of their egg its egg is simply more appealing than the others, so the target bird will sit on the cuckoo eggs, preferentially to its own eggs. This is all very
3: well for birds and butterflies, but of course, we humans, we're a higher class of being, right? We wouldn't be silly enough to fall for the supernormal stimulus con. We would never try and make out with a badly painted cylinder to be fooled into lusting after something that's nothing like a real human. Or would we?
0: I mean, that's what pornography is all about. Exaggerated large breasts, exaggerated narrow waists, all the traits that estrogen push a healthy female body toward exaggerated quite a bit. Maybe we're not exempt after all. I think that the, the concept of supernormal stimuli just explains so much, practically everything gone awry in our current civilization. Pornography and junk food and our current entertainment industry. Barbie is a good example of a supernormal stimulus in that larger breasts on women, narrower waists on women are associated with youth and with healthfulness. But with a doll, that can exaggerate this shape to an extreme that would be detrimental to health. In nature, the instinct is supposed to guide us towards something healthy. In modern civilization, they pull us toward doing a lot of things that are anywhere from just a waste of time to actually very physically detrimental. We need to be aware of the concept of supernormal stimuli and recognize when something is pulling a natural instinct in some unnatural direction. And once we recognize it, we have a fair bit of willpower to override that and turn ourselves back to the more natural alternative.
3: You're listening to the BBC Earth podcast, where this week we're bringing you stories about beauty. Of course, not all beauty is the showy kind. Sometimes it's more subtle. Sometimes beauty is less about what something is and more about what it represents.
1: Snowdrops are the earliest flower to come through the snow.
3: That's Joe Sharman, botanist, nurseryman and snowdrop obsessive
1: snow is actually not opaque, light gets through snow and the light that gets through the snow hits the ovary of the flower which is dark and that light is converted into heat. So as the little ovary is sitting there under the snow it's actually converting light to heat and it's melting its way through and this is why the snowdrops actually seem to push through the snow as it's melting. To me they are a symbol that spring is coming and this is why for the Victorians it was the flower of hope. It doesn't matter how miserable it is, how wet it is, how cold it is, you've got feet of snow, that snowdrop is coming up and it's saying spring is coming, I am coming up, I'm forcing my way through and I'm going to show you this absolutely pure, beautiful white flower. So the most common thing that people say is, oh, they're all green and white, aren't they? And then I always start by saying, well, of course they are. They're all green and white. And then I say, but have a look at this one. This one's double. And then have a look at this one. The differences in the leaves, the differences in the markings, the flowering time, the size, the shape, the form, the range of variation that's possible seems to be almost unlimited. I suppose it's like grains of sand. Everyone is different. Every snowflake is different. Every snowdrop is different. The one that really got me into snowdrops was in 1985 and my mother was walking in Wanderbury Ring which is just outside Cambridge and she noticed a clump of yellow snowdrops and even at whatever tender age I was I knew enough to know that the snowdrop that my mother had discovered at Wanderbury was particularly special because it was a very large vigorous yellow flowered snowdrop. Me being who I am, I get very excited by these things and persuaded the warden, who is Bill Clark, to give me one bulb. He kept a bulb and then a third bulb went to the Botanic Garden in Cambridge. And the rest of the clump was sold to a Dutch bulb company and they started propagating it with the idea of selling it. The bulb company had a disaster and they lost all of them. And this only left the three that one I had, the one the Botanic Garden had and the one Bill Clark had. So there were only three left.
3: This unusual little flower was Joe's big snowdrop break, his golden ticket into the clandestine world of galanthophiles, people who are really into snowdrops.
1: I got people writing to me, asking for the plant, phoning me, wanting the plant. And I even had somebody who turned up to acquire the plant. And at that particular point in time, I only had three flowers. So if I hadn't have been there, they could have taken them, and that would have been it. The other thing I got was invitations to what were known as snowdrop parties or snowdrop lunches. And this was where somebody with a very good collection would invite other people who were into snowdrops to have a nice meal and to learn as much as they could about snowdrops. So my first collection started from these people. We get called galanthophiles. We've got everybody from electricians, coal miners, pig farmers... Plumbers right the way through to people with two baronetsies and lord this and lady that. People get the bug and it doesn't matter. I've been breeding snowdrops since 1995. I did a snowdrop which is called Golden Fleece. It took me 10 years to breed it. 10 years after I started, I get the first flower. It still took me eight years to have enough to sell one. It set a record at the time. It went for £1,390 on eBay for one bulb. One of the things I've learned how to do is breed doubles to order and I don't tell anybody what I eat, which parents I use of course we don't like to tell people where we are. In fact, we're very coy about that, because the value of what I have there is absolutely enormous. And there have been lots of instances where gardens have been open to the public, where plants have been stolen. Some of the rarer ones, when they're stolen, are so unique that no one could ever sell them. So for instance, Carolyn Elvis had a, a form named for her the person who stole it can never sell it because it'd be like having a Rembrandt suddenly appearing after 50 years. You know, as soon as one of these snowdrops turned up, everyone would know where it had come from. There are a lot of people who are very competitive. They are trying to get the latest thing, the newest thing all the time, but I'm very uncompetitive. I focus on what I'm doing, which is breeding new varieties, selling snowdrops, and trying to be the best nursery I can be.
3: When it comes to beauty, humans don't have brightly coloured tail feathers, shining scales, eye spots or antlers. If we want to make ourselves look extra gorgeous, one way to do it is with a fancy new outfit. We drape ourselves in bright colours, stripes and spots, prints and patterns. But sadly, the process that turns fabrics the beautiful colours we crave is one of the most environmentally damaging on our planet.
4: Chemicals-wise, you end up using almost 1.2 kilos of chemical per kilo of fabric.
3: That's Dr. Oyar Kony from a company called Colorifix.
4: Everything from the dye itself to mordanting agents that contain heavy metals, plasticizing agents, different types of resins, heavily carcinogenic items like potassium dichromate. 25% of all the chemicals made in the world by volume go into textiles. It's, uh, it's really staggering and it really blew me away once i started looking into this industry these end up causing heavy metal accumulation which happens a lot in plants they end up damaging insects which again are the base of a whole other food chain it'll take decades for us to fully understand the damage we've already caused and it might be too late to change it if we don't start changing now
3: dr or yarkoni is a chemist a scientist and like all good scientists he's used to asking what if what if there was a way of dyeing fabric that didn't hurt the environment? What if we could make color without using harmful chemicals? What if, instead of fighting with the natural world, we could somehow tap into nature's way of doing things?
4: Yeah, colorifics is very much inspired from nature. We're essentially aiming to get pigments and dyes everywhere from nature, from spiders and butterflies. We're looking at melanin that we have in our own skin, pink, yellow, red, brown. We as a species have been studying how nature works for a very long time and one of the biggest focuses was to understand the language that nature uses, DNA. I go and find the DNA sequence and then in there I look for the message, make the color. There are some really interesting pigments that are unique to certain birds. Parrots for instance have a whole class of pigment that they're the only animal on the planet that has. So we have a lot of really fun areas to explore and bring those colors to life.
3: So you've identified the fragments of DNA that make a gorgeous colour. But the DNA is not much use all by itself. Orr and his team transplant the strings of colour-making DNA into tiny microorganisms, single-celled creatures with long, complicated names.
4: Escherichia coli, Saccharomyces cerevisiae and Bacillus subtilis. So we have three organisms that we've tested that work. So these are microorganisms that you'd find in soil, that you'd find in food items that are actually on and in our bodies today. So one of the examples was a red beetle, which is the cochineal. It makes a red dye called carmine red. For us to make that color, what we do is we take the DNA from the beetle and then translate it from beetle DNA dialect to microorganism dialect. So then our organism can understand the message well and perform the function efficiently.
3: And then the microorganisms do what microorganisms do best. They replicate.
4: We grow them in these big fermenters, so it's pretty much the same way that you make beer. But instead of making alcohol, you're making the colors. The advantage of doing things with nature is that nature is self-sufficient and self-replicating. So in our process, once we modify a cell to start producing a color, Every 22 minutes, it's going to divide and make another one. So that means from one cell, it takes me about 13 hours to get to 8 billion cells. And 13 hours later, each one of those will make another 8 billion cells. So, I mean, our team of colorifics is pretty small uh, on human terms, but we have trillions of little employees working day and night making colour.
3: So we've created a colour, and we've grown enough of it. Now we have to get that dye onto the fabric. Yet again... Nature already has a model for how to do it.
4: One of the inspirations was when you see mildew growing in a tea towel, no matter how much you wash it, you're going to see the stain stay there. The microorganism doesn't really like having pigment inside itself. It really wants to push it out. If you give it a material like fabric or a t-shirt, then they'll stick onto that and start pumping the pigment directly onto the material. We reduce the use of water by 90%. We use quite a lot less energy because we're doing the dying at body temperature, meaning 37. And finally, with regards to the chemicals that go out into the environment through waste, we're using all food and feed grade chemistry. There's not a single chemical with a hazard symbol that goes into the process. The worst thing that's in our waste really is residual sugar, which is an easy thing to manage and something that nature can deal with with a little bit of help compared to the host of hazardous chemistry used today. We still have a long way to go before we're out there and replacing bits of the industry, but I can really see that happening over the next 15 to 20 years to be a major shift in how we make things and that we start using nature's blueprints to solving these problems. I mean, I think beauty is a very natural concept and has always had a direct relationship with color. There's a reason that nature's made so many colors and so many hues and shades. And that's because all organisms like to identify themselves. The individual expression of beauty is one of the most direct things that we recognize in each other. I think it's just about making sure that it doesn't come at a price that we're not willing to pay.
3: couldn't let an episode about beauty go without at least briefly mentioning the birds of paradise. These most spectacular of animals are famous for their plumage and perhaps the most spectacular of all is the Wilson's bird of paradise. Not just because of his luminous blue head, his shiny red back or the fact that his tail feathers look like a curly little poirot moustache. It's that he has a secret. When he displays, he clears a space on the forest floor with a branch positioned just so above him. When the female shows up, she perches on that branch and looks down on him from above. He dances, as all birds of paradise do, hopping and skipping, flashing his yellow neckband and waggling that tail. But then, the grand finale, he pops his collar. Seen from the side, it's a pretty impressive display, a stiff disc of feathers like a medieval ruff. But to get the full effect, you have to see what she's seeing. The inside of the collar is a hypnotic shade of iridescent green, only when viewed from directly above. Even for the most beautiful species, from the most beautiful family of birds, even this splendid prince holds a little something back. Maybe the best kind of beauty is the kind that's saved for an audience of one. You've been listening to the BBC Earth podcast. I'm Emily Knight, and I hope you'll come back next week when we'll be telling stories that go on forever. Forever, forever, forever. Till then, if you'd like to continue the adventure, why not sign up to our email newsletter? All the latest stories and videos from BBC Earth delivered direct to your inbox. Sign up at bbcearth.com forward slash newsletter and never miss a moment.